in the beginning, we're told, God planted a garden. And in the very center of that garden, the Bible tells us, God planted a tree. The tree of life. The book of Revelation tells us the leaves of this life-giving tree have the power to heal the nations. And the fruit of this tree grants eternal life to all those who eat of it. But this was not the only tree that God planted there. Next to the tree of life, also in the midst of the garden, was a second tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The second tree would not bring life, but the curse of death on all who eat it. For God said, the day that you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will surely die. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 18. If you know the story of Adam and Eve, you know that they did not choose to eat from the tree of life. Instead, they ate from the fruit of that cursed tree. And that tree continues to stand in the midst of all humanity to this day, bringing death to all mankind. This morning, Absalom, the young man who took of the forbidden fruit, who reached out and took hold of the throne of Israel and tried to rob it from his father David, he will receive the due curse for eating that forbidden fruit. And yet as we look at his gruesome end this morning, we can't help but see the hope of the gospel as we look at that cursed tree. If you found 2 Samuel 18, let's stand together as we honor the reading of God's word, beginning in verse 1. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee... They will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. The men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to be happened to meet the servants of David 
Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have glad, been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacher treacherously against his life, and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I'll not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And then ten men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own house. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. You may be seated. Warriors eaten by trees. Sounds like something out of the Lord of the Rings fantasy novel, not out of the scriptures. We could have retitled this morning's sermon, Our God is a Consuming Forest. If you're visiting with us this morning, I'll sort of try to catch you back up to speed. So, David the king has fled from his castle in Jerusalem because his treacherous son, Absalom, has gotten all of the people of Israel on his side, day by day, winning the hearts of the men and the women, sowing seeds of discord and disloyalty and discontentment into the hearts of the people. And so Absalom enters into Jerusalem, and the people are having the fanfare, and the trumpets are blowing, and they're celebrating, and he marches in, and his first official act as king is to go in and violate all of his father's wives women that David had left behind to care for the castle while he was gone. Nevertheless, despite all that Absalom has done against David as chapter 18 unfolds, what we find, firstly, is, an un, is a reluctant war. David must enter into the reluctant war. So David and his men, they run into the wilderness... But guess who pursued them? Absalom and all the people of Israel. And David goes across the Jordan River, and Absalom and the people also pass over the Jordan River. Absalom chasing after his father, intent on plunging the sword's edge into his own father's heart. And still, after all of this, 
Absalom's betrayal, the gross violation of David's wives, the murder of David's son Amnon by Absalom. After all that Absalom has done against David, David still seems reluctant to go into battle against him. Verse 1, we find David arraying his men for war. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders over hundreds. And we get down to verse 6 and something feels very wrong here. So the army of David went out into the field against Israel. Why is David reluctant? He's going to war against his own people. These are the people that he was chosen from among the flock in order to shepherd and care for. Now he's having to raise a sword against them. He's going to war against his own son, the son he loves. And I think what David realizes and is not willing to admit is that this war is going to end with either his death or the death of his son. And it seems that everyone else in the story recognizes that fact, and David doesn't want to admit it. This is why they won't let David go into battle, verse 3. Look at it with me. The men said, huh, you're not going out there. You shall not go out. If we flee, they don't care about us. If half of us die, they won't care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it's better that you send us help from the city. Who is the only man that Absalom wants to kill? His father. That's it. This isn't about the people. This isn't about that army or this army or winning a battle or a victory. This is about a son hell-bent on killing his own father. At some point, David has to defend himself. Absalom is not willing to leave well enough alone. David left the city. David left the country. And still his son is pursuing him to the outskirts of the kingdom. Absalom has left his father with no choice except to enter into a reluctant war against his own son. We often hear the tired trope that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath. But today's story really reveals the truth and the heartbeat behind the entire Old Testament. Whatever war exists between God and man, it is a reluctant war on the part of God. When Moses encountered the Lord at Mount Sinai, God himself passes by and proclaims his own name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Do you hear the reluctance there? He lists his mercy, his grace, his 
slow anger, his abounding steadfast love, his faithfulness, his willingness to forgive every iniquity and sin and transgression. But if mankind insists on continuing in rebellion, refuses to be forgiven, he will enter into a reluctant war against the guilty. Well, what about the Lord's treatment of the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament? How many times did God preserve his people from the rightful wrath against their sins? How many times did God relent from the evil he had planned against them? Or they disobeyed and he forgave? How long, how many centuries did God put up with adultery and idolatry and injustice within his kingdom before he finally was pushed to make war on his people? 2 Chronicles 36 tells us all the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at the prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people and there was no remedy. The reluctant war. Finally, as a last resort, because God must defend his holiness and his honor and his divine justice, as a last resort, God finally entered into war. But he did it after exhausting every other possibility. Today's story reminds us that in our sin, we are all at war with our Heavenly Father. And in this war, we're not just content to kill one another, although we do that. We're not satisfied even to destroy half of creation. Although we'll do that if we can. We will not be satisfied in this war until we have killed God. That's the objective of sinful man. Kill God. Because I want to be God. And as long as God is sitting on the throne, I can't be the king. Absalom realizes that truth. He's never really truly king until his father is dead. You and I will never truly rule our own lives until we're convinced God is dead. Friends, God did not want to pour out his wrath on us. We have pushed him to it. We have waged war on him. We, his sons and his daughters, David this morning illustrates to us the way our father has entered into a reluctant war with us. We also see in David, secondly, the father's heart. Unlike Absalom, who was counseled foolishly by Hushai to proceed into battle in person, David has men who have the wisdom to realize they don't care about any of us. They'll mow half of us down if it means that they get to kill you. You're worth 10,000 of us. You stay, we will go. As the ranks file out to battle, David anxiously stands there by the gate. And we hear this desperate plea. 
not for his own life, but for the life of his son. Verse 5. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. This is what we mean in part when we say that David was a man after God's own heart. This is the heart of the father for his children. Even after everything that Absalom has done, even though Absalom in this moment is seeking to kill his own father, David's heart is pleading with anyone who will listen, be gentle, have mercy, spare his life, not for his sake, but for mine, for my heart. Why? Has God the Father chosen to bestow so much love on us and that after everything we have done against him, he still pleads, have mercy. Be gentle. Every man who passed through the city gates heard the Father's heart. They all saw the compassion, the anguish that gushed forth in tears as they heard the desperate plea, be gentle. Joab heard it, Abishai heard it, Hittai, Ittai the Gittite heard it, all the commanders heard it, all the people heard it. I wonder this morning, do you hear the Father's heart today? After entering a reluctant war with all mankind, a war that we ourselves started, the father sent his most trusted commander into battle, not one like Joab who would go his own way and disobey orders, but one who was a man after the father's own heart. God sends his son into battle. And we can picture the father standing at the gates of heaven as Jesus is about to enter this world, and we see the father pleading, deal gently, be gentle with the young man, with that young woman. When the Lord comes and he faces us in battle, it's the truth is kill or be killed, hang or be hanged. And when the choice came, the Lord Jesus chose to hang on a tree for us. Psalm 103 reminds us, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who love him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us, just like a father shows compassion to his children. So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. This is the father's heart for you and me. Be gentle. This morning I wonder whether you have the father's heart. David is able to plead for mercy on behalf of Absalom even after everything that he's done. Even as Absalom has snipers with their guns pointed, searching their countryside for David's head. Even in this moment, David is pleading with the father's heart. Deal gently. Is this your heart for your enemies? 
Could you plead and say, this man, this murderer, this rapist, have mercy on him? That's who Absalom is, by the way. And yet this is precisely what the Father has done for us. Or I wonder whether the words of Joab in verse 11 are closer to your heart. <clears throat> Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have glad, been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. Notice, number one, how little Joab values the life of Absalom. Ten pieces of silver and a belt how little he values obedience to his king who specifically commanded him not to touch Absalom. Joab says, we're not dealing gently with this guy. He's getting exactly what he deserves. Go in the life of that worthless piece of scum. The heart of Joab refuses to forgive. He's not going to show mercy. He's not moved to compassion, not even for the king's sake. I wonder if that's how you feel about your enemies. Friends, it's treachery against your own soul to bear a grudge against a fellow sinner. To refuse to forgive is to guarantee that you yourself will not be forgiven. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. Matthew 6. May God give us his heart for sinners. We've seen the reluctant war. We've witnessed the Father's heart. But looming at the center of this story is the cursed tree. Verse 9. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. And his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. So here we have it. What is it that has proven to be Absalom's downfall in the end? What is it by which he is suspended in these tree limbs between heaven and earth? Those luxurious locks that hair the hair he was so proud of Absalom is hanging there by his own pride and defenseless he awaits his fate we're told a man a certain man spotted him but he certainly wouldn't touch the king's son but Joab shows no qualms verse 14 Joab said I'm not wasting time like this with you and he took three javelins in his hand and he thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. It's the cursed tree. Absalom in all of his pride, riding on his mule through the forest, in the midst of the garden, the fingers of divine justice reach down and ensnare him, snatching him off of his mule. Unless we think, you know, this is some novel occurrence, like 
oh, this didn't happen to anyone else, and certainly it would never happen to me. We're actually led to believe by the story that this is what was happening all across the forest. Verse 8. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. It seems that the moral of this story is it's not the sword to be afraid of, it's the tree, the cursed tree. The story seems to plead with us to realize that there is one waiting for every single one of you. Every man, every woman, every young man, every young woman is plunging headlong, insistent on their pride, insistent on pursuing their sin, insistent on hating God, in fact, insistent on waging war against that God. Every single one of them will one day find themselves caught up into their own cursed tree, the fate hanging between heaven and earth. There were two hanging on their trees next to Jesus on that fateful day. One cried out for mercy. The other used his final breath to curse God and die. I wonder which one you are. Because the cursed tree didn't just find Absalom, all who followed him and raged against David seemed to be finding their trees in the forest and they were consumed. Because Absalom's fate is really the fate of all who rebel against God and against his chosen king. Someone has to hang on the tree. It's either going to be you or who? son has to hang. The law calls for death and God cannot mock his own justice. And we stare down this terrifying, horrifying truth and we realize that maybe we're given one last chance. If, if we were just given one last chance, then maybe we would cry out for mercy and we'd turn away from our sins. And sure enough, that chance comes to repent and plead for mercy. And when we open our mouths, this is what comes out. His blood be on us and on our children. Hang him on the tree. Given a third, a fourth, a one hundredth, a thousandth chance, we would still rebel, still refuse. The gospel is the story about how God the Son came down into the battlefield personally that day. He gave Absalom and all the people of God the satisfaction that they didn't get in chapter 18. They got to hang the Son of God on a tree. We've killed the Son of David. We've run our spear through his heart. As Absalom's frame hangs on that tree, it evokes the word of the law in Deuteronomy 21 we heard earlier this morning. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. The law is preached from this cursed tree. Behold Absalom and see what you deserve. You who murdered the Son of God, this is the death that awaits you. And yet the gospel is preached from the very same cursed tree, Galatians 3.13. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. So Absalom's death on this tree foreshadows the fate that awaits all those who will not repent and believe. But Absalom's death on that tree also prophesies what Jesus Christ would do, suffering the Son in the place of the sons and daughters of God. As we hear the trumpet blast of Joab in verse 16, we're reminded that the battle will not cease until a son has died. Not until the spear pierces your heart and every last drop of lifeblood has been drained. Only when you have died will God's reluctant war against your sin be satisfied. That is, unless someone else has died in your place. Unless someone else's heart has been pierced through for you. Unless some other man has hung on the cursed tree for your crimes. Unless the Son of God has hung between heaven and earth for the forgiveness of your sin. Verse 18 tells us that Absalom, ironically, had dug his own grave. He had already erected his own monument, a gravestone in the King's Valley. Friend, this does not have to be you. You may feel like I've, I've dug my own grave. Now I've got to lay in it. No, you don't. Can't you see how reluctant your father is to enter into war against you? Can you hear the father's heart beating for you? Be gentle. I want to be gentle with you. I want to have mercy and compassion. Can you not see how he sent his own son to suffer in the place of sinners so that all who repent and believe in Jesus can escape the grave, can have eternal life. The Father's heart begs, be gentle for my sake. Friends, come to the cursed tree. Come to the cross and find there that it is the tree of life. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the embodiment of the compassion of God. We thank you that when you saw us, the sea of humanity in rebellion at war with God, you felt compassion because we were being led by a shepherd who hated us. We needed to be returned to you. We thank you that you were willing to hang on a cross for your sheep. Call them out. Call them out this morning. May they repent. May you be gentle with them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.